Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Well, happy one-year anniversary to our podcast, Wendy. Indeed. Happy anniversary. I can't believe that was a year ago, and I totally remember the day we launched it, Mm because it was Halloween, and we were doing a show that night, and you know we'd take a break and i'd check and make sure it showed up in the the podcast feed correctly oh, yeah. and everything like that so i remember that now that was fun but we've had a lot of episodes since then and uh covered a lot of ground and met some fun people and i would i would say yeah i, I just i you know 64 episodes this is our 64th episode and it kind of blows my mind that we're already a year into it and you think about all the different people we've met and authors we've talked to and topics we've explored and, places we've gone <laughs> and i and i feel like we've just like just scratched the surface that there's a ton ton more like topics and yeah stuff we can research and sing about i agree i mean i didn't necessarily expect people ask me this all the time oh well how i mean how do you come up with new topics where don't you run out of things to talk to and when we first started it i was like okay when you're talking about paranormal or the unknown there's you got your different categories, right. but it's like now it's just, you're right. It's like we opened up the, the Pandora's box and there's seems to be an endless supply of topics to talk right, about, I do which think is so. great. Like, I'm like, I, you know, I, I, uh, I got plenty of ideas for the future, so I'm really excited. And so I think uh, let's pat ourselves on the back a little bit for a successful first year. Yay. Yay. And thanks to the listeners who have been with us. I don't know if anybody's actually listened from episode zero all the way through to 64, but if you have, thank you. And if you just joined in, thank you. And we'll do some more. How about that? That sounds good. October was our best month for podcast downloads yet. So thank to everybody who's been downloading See You on the Other Side and checking out the songs. We appreciate that. That's right. And speaking of which. What? We have a new (laughs) iTunes review. (laughs) All right. As of this week. Why don't you read it? It's five stars. Hey, I like that. Yes. And it says, great show. It's from The Evil Dr. Toad. Thank you, Evil Dr. Toad. Thank you. And The Evil Dr. Toad says, listening to this is like sitting around with friends talking about cool paranormal stuff. Not pretentious or condescending at all. These are people I'd gladly have a beer with. And they know there's spooky stuff. Give it a listen. Well, I think that's nice, Evil Dr. Toad. So thank you very much. Yeah, I'd like to have a beer with people who enjoy listening to us. Right, and especially a guy <laughs> named Evil Dr. Toad. Right, or guy or gal. Right, that's true. Doctor could be anybody. <laughs> so so no. thank you for the review. Appreciate that. And if, if anybody else um, would care to leave us a review on iTunes, that always, as you know, helps us get the word out to more people, get some more listeners and maybe some new topics. And Yep, and we love reading them on the air. So we will read, <laughs> we will read your five-star review on the air. So uh, this week, though, I mean, it was Halloween on Saturday. Yeah. Devil's Night Friday, Halloween Saturday, big weekend, exciting weekend. Yeah, this was a this was pretty much uh, my Christmas. I felt like we were running the Ghost Haunted History Tours <laughs> in Minneapolis and Madison, and then our guide who was with us last week, Lisa. Uh, yeah, it was her the Devil's birthday. Night birthday girl. Yep, so she had a Devil's Night birthday, and her costume was like awesome. Oh my gosh, extraordinary! Yeah, it was amazing. It was it was pretty good, and the party was great. I got to do the Thriller dance again. Which was fun, and I totally danced my booty off. Yeah, and I think I might have actually injured myself. <laughs> oh, how did you dancing, hurt Which sucks because I'm, <laughs> I don't know. I woke up the next day and my knee hurt really bad, and I was supposed to run not, or ten miles yesterday, and Ooh. I had to put it off because I was, just weren't feeling it. Yeah, so I'm gonna try to do that this afternoon. But I have my half marathon next weekend. Ooh, that's exciting. That's so a bad time to injure myself <laughs> by dancing. <laughs> right. But it was still totally worth it. Sure, it as so long as it was during, like, it was, if it was like to the final count, if it was, you're dancing, you hurt yourself <laughs> to a good song, like the final countdown or something. Like if you like got hurt, like listen to Anaconda or something. Oh and no! Then you'd be like oh man, and I hurt myself to this Nicki Minaj song. Oh no! But that was a great party. I haven't been to a party with so much dancing in a long time, so I especially enjoyed that. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. So it was a great Halloween, and uh, you know, a lot of people were asking questions this weekend as i always do uh when we start talking about ghosts about ghost hunting and looking yes and looking for spirits and that's who we talked to an author this week 
who just released a book called Ghost Hunting 2.0. Cool. And Mike, we've never, well, we've done a little bit of, you know, exploration of, of haunted places, but we really haven't done any kind of a formal ghost hunt. I think maybe we should try to do that sometime. I think we should too. I think we should have a, like, especially in a place like the Orpheum or the Majestic downtown or something like that. Yeah. Just go in there. Or the Frequency. Yep. The author today, uh, Chris Chris Boris is, is the author we interviewed. And he uh, he talks about some of the equipment that he recommends bringing when you go when you go ghost hunting. So you hear a little bit of that. Now, Chris, you might have seen some of his videos because he's a fairly famous YouTuber. Tuber called the Irate Gamer. Okay. And so like he had the the fifty fifth most subscribed channel on YouTube for a while. Yeah. Wow. So he was super, so people That's um, impressive. If you're into video game blogs. You might have seen them before. I'm not a huge. I used to like video games when I was a kid, but I, I fell by the wayside somewhere after. Yeah, me too. My twenties, and uh, I haven't had a chance to be playing video games. But if you're into it, you might recognize Chris from his video blog, The Irate Gamer. Okay. Let's talk to him. We're here with Chris Boris from Pursuit of the Paranormal and a paranormal communicator who has just authored a new book. Ghost Hunting 2.0. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm great. So about how long ago did the book come out? Well, the book had just released um, in uh, about two weeks ago and wow. been having a lot of success with it. Now, what inspired you to write a book called Ghost Hunting 2.0? Like, what was the impetus behind it? Yeah, I know it's kind of a weird title, but uh, I'm one of those fans that watches all the ghost hunting shows and... I, I just felt that over the, the years, nothing new was really brought to the table. And, I mean, it's just everything follows the same formula. Week after week, we see the same thing. It's usually a different place, but, you know, their tactics are the same, mm-hmm. their approach is the same, and it always leads to the same evidence being found. So I wanted to come at ghost hunting from a different angle and and, and saying, well, what if we use a new approach? What what could we be able to find from that? A lot of things I've been asking, um, like when I do lectures and stuff, one of the things I uh, ask the audience is, what is the next step in ghost hunting? And nobody can tell me. And so that's why I wrote Ghost Hunting 2.0, because I feel like I really found that next step. Okay, well, what would you consider... The first step. I, I think, I mean, a lot of people would be like, well, I don't know if we even got the first step far enough. So what would you consider, what would you consider <laughs> the first step, like the old school way of ghost hunting? Right. Well, when Ghost Hunters, uh, the, the TV show, came on the scene, mm-hmm. I mean, they really, set, they really set the precedent of how to ghost hunt. Uh, I, myself included, uh, when they came on, on the scene, I didn't realize ghost hunting was an actual thing. I, I, you know, I thought it was just going out, trying to experience the paranormal. But when this show came out, I saw that there was a procedures to do things, a certain way to do, um, you know, go about an investigation. There are actual tools. I mean, this is the first time they showed America that, yeah, this is an actual pastime. Sure. And so they really set the precedent. It's like, okay, you do it this way. And, uh, you know, the proof was in the pudding. I mean, uh, over the next few years, it seemed like every town had their own ghost set of ghost hunters, but the problem was they all followed the same ideology as the ghost hunters. So that's pretty much ghost hunting 1.0. So um, let's summarize that ideology real quick. I mean, do you just see it as coming into a place and, and setting up the cameras and bringing along a psychic or what? Let's just, let's just define that real quick. A couple of the, the elements that you think are, are part of that 1.0 that the ghost hunters use. Okay. Uh, I laid this out a little bit in my book, and I, I've kind of come up with a the pattern that we usually see in all these ghost hunting shows. Uh, so they use the same approach, which causes the same scenarios to play out, which causes the same sticking points to be encountered. And, of course, when that happens, nothing new is brought to the table. Uh, for instance, when, uh, you know, somebody goes out, goes ghost hunting, uh, there have been a hundred different ghost hunting shows on TV in the past decade. I mean, that, that's that's pretty accurate. Oh yeah, you can't and, escape them, especially this time of year. Yeah, exactly. And one thing we've been able to find out for sure is that 
anyone can pretty much go out and experience the paranormal. All these shows are good at finding the paranormal. What these shows aren't good at doing is um, knowing what to do after they find it. It's like they find the paranormal and then they constantly drop the ball once it comes to interacting with the spirit. They don't know, you know, where to go from there. And it's understandable because there's just so many mysteries surrounding the paranormal. So one of the things that um, I've done to kind of pull back the veil a little bit is to uh, bring other fields of research into um, ghost hunting, things like psychology, philosophy, uh, ancient texts. And I tell you, it's really opened my eyes in my research and, and helped me go and go to that next level. Okay, so... So you see that, like, let's say you get a a little, uh, you know, a blip on the infrared camera, or you know, people will hear an EVP or something to get the 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 evidence that something might be there. I think that's what we're going with. Like, that's where we are with a lot of these paranormal shows. Like, as far as you know, you hear a story about a place and you go there, and then you might get a, a strange, you know, a strange presence in a picture or people might, you know, pick up a, you know, footsteps in a room or something like that and, and record them. And I think is 2.0 like the next step? Like it's like discovering that somebody else is in the room. Now, what do you do now that you know that somebody else is in the room? Yeah. So let's say that you hear footsteps in a room. Now, what are you going to do with that? Run. So, I would run. <laughs> That's me. Well, well, I, on the other hand, would like to stay there and figure out, okay, who is this? Who's causing this? Why are they causing this? What is the mind state of the person causing this? How can we remedy the situation? You know, and, and these are all factors uh, that need to be asked in, in order to uh, you know, figure out what's behind the haunting. So did something particular happen to you? that got you interested in this in the first place? Well, I think everybody that's usually interested in the paranormal probably had something happen to them when they were uh, younger. Uh, I myself had uh, some grandparents who had a, a haunted house, and there was numerous times where I'd be in the basement all alone, and uh, I would hear people walking around upstairs. Of course, I'd go upstairs, and there'd be no one there. So, you know, those types of instances where it's like, okay, I want to know more to the story. Why is this happening? Why why are people being earthbound? Um, and a lot of my research really does clear that up. When did you decide to kind of start wanting to in- investigate this um, more than just you know going out and having experiences? Because you were known for having a, a YouTube channel about video games mostly, right? Like that's kind of you, you launched a prominence in like a YouTuber way, and then what took your focus where you're like, you know what, I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going to start working on ghost stuff. Well, I was always interested in the paranormal. Uh, and when I did the uh, video games thing, I mean, that really exploded. And it kind of took time away from, you know, my other passions in life. Uh, you have to direct, or you have to focus uh, things in your life that, that are, going for you at the time, and, and that's exactly what I did. But there came a point where I was like, oh, you know what, I, I keep watching all these ghost hunting shows, I feel that I'm evolving uh, more than you know what, what I'm seeing on TV. Uh, week after week, I kept shouting at the TV like, no, you're doing, it, or you're doing it wrong, you should be doing this instead. And it got to a point where I was like, you know what, I'd better put up or shut up. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I did. So I, I financed a trip out to the uh, St. Augustine Lighthouse, which is uh, infamously known for the um, the shadow person footage that the ghost hunters got. Yeah, and, and that, I, al- that one always has stories like uh, like a lot of my paranormal fr- paranormal friends. I make them sound like they're ghosts themselves. No, but that's always <laughs> like that's like a that's like a the mecca, a place for pilgrimage. I mean, St. Augustine is the oldest you know, city in the United States, and it seems for some reason that lighthouse is just known as a lot of people have experiences there. Yeah, it must be like a rite of passage or something. <laughs> right, like you have to go <laughs> You have to go there to earn your Ghostbusters patch or whatever. <laughs> right. But uh, we ended up going there uh, because of that footage, and my initial thought was, okay, if we could go there and actually interact 
with the spirits haunting the place, you know, interacting with the shadow person, uh, I I think it would just make a great um, investigation. Mm -hmm. You know, when I I went down there, the odds were totally against me because, look, there are 100 ghost hunting shows. Everything probably had to have been discovered already. But uh, after that case, that the first time out with this new approach, I found out that that was not the case. And we discovered some incredible things uh, that first time out. So your first paranormal investigation was to this very famous lighthouse in St. Augustine, Florida. And what did you do differently? Like once you got, in the, you know, got into the lighthouse and started your investigation, let's set this up a little bit. So... Did you stay overnight? What time of day was it? How many people were with you? Let's set it up a little bit. Yeah, so I initially, um, me and, and my other investigator friend, Alan Sisko, we went in and kind of, uh, well, we went in the, in the daytime to kind of scout the place out and mm-hmm. see what we were in for. Uh, you know, we've seen this place on TV numerous times uh, and all those ghost hunting shows, you know, ghost hunters, um, I think Scariest Places on Earth did an episode on that. So this, this place is just, like, infamous to us. And being there in person was just uh, a great experience. So when evening came, you know, we met the tour guide, got the tour and everything, uh, and we were ready to, ready to start going. Uh, and I will say that the first hour and a half, we didn't get anything. Uh, and I was kind of... Um, downhearted about the whole thing. I was like, oh, my God, is anything going to happen? Because I spent a lot of money financing this trip. Uh, <laughs> so you know, had you been on, like, a, a, a paranormal investigation before? Because I've gone on a few, like, you hang out at a hotel or something like that, and 90 minutes to me seems like we're just getting warmed up with the waiting. Yeah, I've been on a couple, and we've been asked out to, you know, private residences and whatnot. And there's always that initial period where you're waiting and things are, are trying to ramp up around you. Uh, so I knew that that was, uh, could have been the case. But, of course, you're going to have the thoughts of, well, what if nothing happens tonight? Because ghost hunting is all about being at the right place at the right time. Oh, yeah. So for that uh, initial uh, hour and a half, nothing happened. And uh, so I thought, okay, we've really got to try to pull this these spirits out into the open. And that's kind of like where psychology comes into play. Uh, you want to build comfort with these spirits and kind of pull them out of the woodwork. Because when you go to a haunted location, these spirits are under no obligation to interact with you. I mean, that's, that's the downfall of ghost hunting. Sure. So you want to, having a, a solid foundation in psychology is really beneficial because it can help you kind of, you know, pull these spirits out and it'll help you uh, have more experiences that way. Okay. And that's that's exactly what we did. So we ended up get, getting into an interaction with the spirits uh, not too long after that. You were saying, like, helping to try to get the spirits out. So what were you doing to uh, to, to lure them out, I guess? And what were you using to try to interact with them? Like, I think most people, when they think of, like, well, how do you interact with a spirit? Well, there's a couple ways. You can bust out the good old Milton Bradley or, you know, Parker Brothers Ouija board or whatever (laughs) and go and do it that way. Or you can, I mean, a lot of people have seen where you ask a question, have the tape recorder going, and then study it for electronic voice phenomena, EVP, afterwards to see if something answered you that only the tape recorder or the digital recorder could pick up, what were you guys doing to try to, you know, lure and, and communicate? Right. Well, we were trying to carry ourselves uh, in a manner where we, we could be very approachable. Uh, we were very friendly, uh, very kind, and we started to get some, you know, activity around us, but it seemed like we were being toyed with. We, we experienced a couple of disembodied voices. We are hearing things off in the next room. Uh, and I thought, we've really got to ramp this up because we, we've only got one night to investigate this place. So one of the things we did was uh, we knew that the spirits there uh, were very comfortable with the tour guide. So we made a decision where we're like, okay, well, why don't we bring the tour guide into our investigation? 
and use the philosophy of a friend of a friend is my friend. Sure, I've uh, crashed a lot of parties that way. <laughs> right, so this is the same thing. We, we wanted to crash the party at the uh, St. Augustine Lighthouse, right. and it worked. We instantly built a level of comfort with the spirits that they started to interact with us. And one of the things I love using is the K2 meter. Now, I know there's a lot of flaws to the K2 meter, the cell phones, um, set the things off and whatnot, so we, we put all that stuff aside. Mm -hmm. But throughout the night, we were getting spikes happening on command uh, and, and things that really defied logic. And, you know, when you ask, when you have a K2 meter session, you want to make sure you ask things twice. You want to make sure you kind of foolproof it sure. uh, so it's just not you know, some random EM reading uh, coming through the area. Why don't you explain what the K2 meter is for people who might not be familiar with that specific device? Yeah, certainly. So the K2 meter... It's an EMF, uh, it detects EM fields, which is electromagnetic um, energy. And the, it's pretty much the same energy that makes up a spirit. And okay. when a spirit is around, they can kind of manipulate uh, this meter. And there's lights on the meter, so you can actually get into a conversation or interaction with the spirit uh, by having them manipulate those lights on command. So... That would be, so let's say you're asking the spirit a question like, hey, you know, blink once for yes or, or light the thing up for no or something like that. So that's what you would do to like yes or no questions? Yeah, we, you can do that. Uh, but for me personally, I tell them to uh, blink, the, blink, the, blink the meter whenever uh, your intentions are to say yes. Uh, leave it blank or leave it stationary if you want to indicate no. Uh, we've tried numerous occasions of having uh, one meter signify yes and another signify no, but for some reason, I don't understand, the, the spirits never go for that. Okay. Uh, I don't know why, they just prefer using one meter. It, it's kind of weird. Okay, so but you were finding that when you would ask it a, a question, it would turn on, it would, it would start going when you, like as in an answer to the question. Yeah, so one of the spirits that we interacted with, her name was Eliza, and she is uh, one of the spirits that hangs around there. She died in, like, the, the 1800s, and that's the one spirit that a lot of people will have interactions with. She's, like, the most um, popular spirit at the location there. And when we ended up getting into an interaction with her, we asked her on several occasions, is this Eliza? And every single time, that meter would light up, yes. Uh there was a couple of times, you know, I'd, I'd ask, uh, are you this person or that person? And the meter would not light up. So mm -hmm. it, it's very coincidental uh, of how the meter does spike when you ask a question. Now, how did you get the name Eliza? Was that something that the tour guide knew from, like, stories about the lighthouse? Yes, the tour guide knew all the information. Uh, the information's online as well that you could pull up. Uh, there's actually a, a newspaper article of her dying um, you want the, the specifics of her tragedy or her tragic end. But one interesting thing I should know is that the tour guide that uh, was giving us a tour that night, I'm not sure if he's still employed there, uh, but when he started working at the lighthouse, he was around the age of 16. Okay. Uh, Eliza, when she died, she was around 15 years of age. And a lot of times when he was giving tours and working there, she would always interact with his meters, uh, just, you know, interact with his tour group, and it became, you know, a joke, a joke around all the other tour guides that, oh, she probably has a crush on you. And the over the next couple of years that he worked there, uh, the feelings must have grew because she would start getting jealous of him whenever, you know, there were attractive girls in his tour group. She would act in a very jealous manner. She wants him sitting by them, talking to them. And so we wanted to really question, uh, when we got to a conversation with Eliza, we wanted to question her on this. Because one of my things uh, that I wanted to find out was, can spirits fall in love? And so I asked her point blank, I, I said, is... This person, is he, do you consider him your boyfriend? And the meter spiked. And that just blew us all away. I mean, here is, is proof positive that spirits 
have emotions in the afterlife, and they can have new emotions in the afterlife. Now, what did the, what did the guide think about that? Was he like, hey, I think you're great, but you're, um, <laughs> you're dead? Yeah, it was all par for the course for him. I mean, he, he's been experiencing this for two years, so uh, I guess he, he enjoyed it, as far as I knew. Well, and, and I think it's an interesting thing, too. If you, like, hear voices or something like that, or you hear footsteps, or see, you know, you just see somebody in the window, that might not be, uh, I mean, that can be a recording. That doesn't have to be, like, a, um, a disembodied consciousness. But for a, a spirit to fall in love or to uh, feel affection towards, uh, you know, a similarly aged human uh, that they saw you know, frequently, I mean, that goes to, I mean, that goes towards like, okay, that's not just a recording. That's not just something (laughs) being played back. That's somebody you can talk to. Right, right. And that's what blew us all away. I mean, this is stuff that you don't see on any ghost hunting show uh, to date. And that's exactly what I wanted to do with my research. And uh, that's a lot of that stuff. uh, That's why I cut call this research so cutting edge because I try to answer these questions that have never been asked before. And and so that becomes more, instead of paranormal investigation, I mean, more, you know, like communication, paranormal communication, and then almost like mediumship. But you don't, you don't see, you know, you, you talk to, you know, people who claim they're mediums and uh, intuitives and but you don't you know like in your everyday life you're not walking around and be like see like dead people walking behind your friends or anything right <laughs> no not at all I, I tell people i don't have any special powers i'm not a medium or, or whatnot and i tell people you know i'm not really into mediums anyway because when you use a medium you have to take everything they they say as gospel you know you have to um, take their word for everything and with this research you know i want to be able to say uh, or I want to be able to ask a question and visually sh- show their answer so people can interpret um, the evidence uh, as they see fit. Now, when you were talking to Eliza, I mean, just l- let's keep on with this example specifically because you said it was a long conversation. When you were talking to her, I mean, why was she still in the lighthouse? Like, it had it was something... Uh, they're bothering her. Did she have some business that she felt was unfinished? No, she seemed to enjoy the lighthouse. Uh, see, when you ask a question like that, it just gets into a, a deeper level of my research. Uh, I have kind of broken down the spirit world by a different uh, by different classifications of spirits, and I have six. And the when you look at these classifications, the uh, one of the underlying principles of all spirits on the other side is that they're all craving something, they're clinging to something. I mean, that is their psychological uh, makeup. Okay. Uh, that is why they're earthbound. Uh, if we look at uh, one of the texts that I use when I go ghost hunting is this thing called the Tibetan Book of the Dead. This is probably the most uh, interesting tool uh, that I have applied in the field of ghost hunting. And this is an ancient book out of Tibet uh, that, that was written in the eight, uh, 1800. And, or, I'm sorry, in 800 AD. Okay. And so it's this text millennia was, old. Yes, yes. And this text was so powerful that the, the person that wrote it, uh, he was a, a mystic at that time, he knew that society was not ready for this powerful text. So he hid it. But the interesting thing is that he had the insight on where to hide it so it would be found 600 years later when people would be uh, enlightened enough to understand and really harness the teachings in it. So what does the Book of the Dead talk about? So the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there's a lot of um, allegory, there's a lot of uh, prayers and such in that book, and it talks about, you know, when it was... Well, it talks about the point after a person dies and all the pitfalls that a spirit or a person can endure in the afterlife. Uh, And this, you know, all these things can happen, um, you know, before you go to heaven, before you're reincarnated, before you're um, going to your next destination. 
And what makes this uh, so invaluable to ghost hunters is that it actually talks about the different realms that exist in the afterlife. One of them is called the Hungry Ghost Realm. Now, with the name of the Hungry Ghost Realm, I would think every ghost hunter would want to rush out and, and pick up this book and be like, what the heck is this about? Yeah, I, w- I want to go to the Hungry... I mean, probably because it's lunchtime, I want to go to the Hungry <laughs> Ghost Realm right now. <laughs> and, you know, when it talks about the Hungry Ghost Realm, it's really laying out a psychological profile for spirits. And, and for what I'm doing, this is required material. Uh you know, even with the case of Eliza, we had to apply the mentality of a hungry ghost to get her to talk to us at one point. Um, and we can talk about that story a little later. When you talk about your classifications, I mean, that makes me think of, you know, Tobin's Spirit Guide or whatever from Ghostbusters, where they have the, uh, you know, the Egon's always quoting from Tobin's Spirit Guide. And, and right. so, so what are your, I mean, as far as classifications that... Um, you know, so give me a couple of those classifications and how it relates to the hungry ghost. Yeah, absolutely. So I come up with six classifications, and the reason that I've classified spirits uh, by their psychological profile is because the current lists that are out there, uh, you know, you go to any ghost hunter site, and they'll and the ones that kind of break down the spirit world, uh, they'll list them in categories like ghost, ghoul, poltergeist, residual haunting, intelligent haunting. You know, they'll, they'll list them like that. Mm-hmm. The, problem, the problem with those kind of lists is that it's something akin to what a bird watcher would use. You're just giving people a list of, you know, how a spirit would appear on the physical plane. It doesn't really answer things like, okay, well, what is the mindset of this spirit? How do we deal with this spirit? You know, how do you uh, delineate one from the other? So I came up with a new classification system that really gets into the nitty-gritty and the nuts and bolts of um, the different types of spirits in, in the afterlife. And uh, one of the, the first classification, uh, you know, when you die, after the point of death, there's three things, uh, or there's three mind states that you can enter into. The first one is that you're in denial of death, uh, maybe you died improperly, uh, and that would make you become a confused spirit. That's the sixth sense kind of spirit, like we don't, yes, exactly. don't know you're dead? Yes, yes, and I, I actually quoted that in the book, yeah. Uh, spoiler the movie spoiler alert sense. for an 18-year-old movie, everybody, sorry. <laughs> yeah, the movie Sixth Sense is all about a confused spirit coming to terms with his afterlife. So, yeah, that, that's the first classification. Uh, the second classification is a spirit, or I'm sorry, a person that dies, becomes a spirit, knows he's dead, or know, knows that they're dead, and, you know, has come to terms with it and just remains in the afterlife. And, but the only reason they're in the afterlife is because they have some kind of clinging, they have some craving, uh, or unfinished business that they're trying to uh, fulfill. And, of course, you know, sometimes uh, the the very thing that they're trying to fulfill uh, is not attainable. And, of course, you know, that can set them uh, down a very destructive path. But for all intents and purposes, that's the the second classification, uh, which is the the hungry spirit. And then the last classification is the non-human spirit, which is, you know, the, the person pops out of their body, and they just, they go where they need to go. They shed their human form and become something else. Uh, so that's the third classification. Now, the other three classifications is where it gets kind of dire because, uh, of course, you know, the, the confused spirit can spiral out of control, their mindset, uh, if, if they're not uh, understanding what's going on. Uh, their mind state can spin out of control. Right. Uh, as far as the, the hungry spirit goes, uh, their hunger can over uh, overtake their... Um, their spiritual development, uh, destroy their mind state, spiral them out of control, and then they can become, uh, for one, uh, what I call a stuck spirit, where they become in- introverted, basically. You know, they're okay. comfortable with their surroundings, they don't want to go go anywhere, they just want to stay where they are. So that's a stuck spirit. Uh, and then we have the uh, exact opposite, which is a wandering spirit. You know, they, they know they're dead, um, they're comfortable with it, but 
They just want to venture out. They want to see what else is out there. So they're kind of like the tourist of the afterlife. And then the last one, uh, and it's the most dangerous classification, is the destructive spirit. And this is where the mind spirals so out of control. They've, uh, their emotional state is out of whack. Their mind state's out of whack. And, uh, you know, it, it's pretty much dealing with a rageaholic, an alcoholic, you know, whatever you will. And uh, they've lost all sense of direction. So those are the six uh, classifications of spirits. How many of those did you take from, like, your personal discoveries you had made or studies you had made, and how many did you assemble from things like the, the Book of the Dead, where you were, you know, you're, you're looking at a classification system. I mean, how much of it is, is it empirical or things that have happened in your research, and how much of that was taken from uh, a synthesis of older texts? I've interacted with all six. <laughs> and what I've done for the book is tried to, uh, well, I tackled each different spirit type uh, one chapter at a time. Okay. And, you know, I talked about my personal experience, um, you know, where in history uh, we can find evidence of these spirit types actually existing as well. So, you know, I'm not just spouting, oh, you know, there's a stuck spirit, wandering spirit, whatnot. I actually have proof, and I bring it to the table and be like, look, these exist. I've dealt with them. Uh, here's how to remedy each one if you're wanting to, you know, cleanse them out of your house, cleanse them out of your life, uh, you know, maybe help them move on and, and get them back to a neutral, hungry spirit state so they can, uh, you know, move on themselves. So it's really, yeah, uh, uh, sticking true to ghost hunting 2.0. And so would you say that, with the like, so let's take Eliza for example. Now she, okay. she's still hanging out at the lighthouse, and she you know took a liking to somebody, or at least you know enjoyed having somebody of the same age be around her. Why why was, is she still there? Well, she has unfinished business. She is still a clinging, craving spirit, and we can see this because uh, you know she's at the lighthouse. Um, she's also falling in love with somebody who is human. Uh, and one way we actually tested um, her psychological makeup is that we hit a, a conversation or a point in the conversation where she left. She would not come back uh, because of something I asked. And we tried for 10 minutes to try to draw her back into the room. And the only thing that would bring her back into the room was when I tempted her with a piece of chocolate or food. And I asked her, well, we tried everything in the book to try to bring her back into the room. And then I asked, Liza, would you like us to bring down a piece of fudge for you? And all the meters that we had in the basement at the time lit up instantly. So, again, you know, I had to prey on her craving-like nature to bring her back in the room, and it helped us uh, solidify that, yes, this was a, a hungry spirit that we were interacting with. So, I mean, what could her unfinished business be? It just can't be that, I mean, the like, it's like, oh, there's no fudge in the afterlife, so we have to stick around, because there, <laughs> there's no, I mean, there's no fudge anyway. Uh, it could be a variety of reasons. I mean, uh, there's been instances... Uh, well, I should say there was an instance where we were called into a house. Uh, this family is being, uh, I don't want to say terrorized, but things were happening in their house that was making them unsettled. So we came in and, and did our initial investigation and kind of found out that it was this uh, old man that died a couple doors down. And it seemed like he just wanted to make it known that he was... I don't want to say alive and well, but yeah, for all intents and purposes, alive and well in the afterlife. And so, after he, so he didn't just like he didn't just like loan him a leaf blower a couple of years ago, and that wasn't his unfinished <laughs> business or something. No, he just uh, wandered over there and uh, wanted to make make it known that he was, you know, he was still around. And after that, he stopped uh, haunting the, the the house. So it seemed to me like all he wanted to do was make it known that you know, he survived the death process and he was able to move on. So, so just, just to be, let people know, just to let people know that hey, you don't have, you know, don't don't worry about it. I'm I'm still around. Yeah. So the level of hunger in that instance is very very mild. And once he 
finish that business, he was able to move on. So it, it just depends on the spirit. You didn't need to... You know, they do things like that people burn stuff and sage and incense and everything. You didn't need to do that kind of thing in order for the uh, old dude to move on to wherever he's going to go. No, not in that instance. Not at all. This was something that uh, could be taken care of verbally. In the stuff that you've seen, you know, have you talked to spirits that just were like, you know what, we're not going to go? Or... Yeah, well, it's, it's all up to their mind state. Like I said, uh, the level of hunger, there's two different types. There's mild hunger and severe hunger. The, the, the mild hunger, you know, it, it doesn't, whatever they're craving doesn't stand in the way of their spiritual development. The, on the other hand, the severe hunger cases, uh, it will stand in the way of their spiritual development, and it will take over their afterlife, their mind state, their emotional state, and cause them so much turmoil that uh, it'll cause them to become a very, very destructive spirit and could evolve them into something that is very demonic. And that's when you have to start using sage and whatnot. When you were talking about the, the rage thing and, you, you know, spirit, that, that, that classification where you get a spirit that's, that's the angry dead. Now, what, what kind of things can they do to people when they're actually mad at them? Like, what would be a, what would be a good example that you've either seen or, you know, in your research of, like you said, you've, mentioned, you've met all six classifications of spirits. Right. What's an example of, the, of an angry one you've met? Well, one thing we have to understand about spirits in the afterlife is that they can manipulate energy. And when we, we take a look at psychology, there's actually um, a field of research that deals with a trinity in the human body, which is called the psychoneuroimmunology. That's what it's called. And this is the study of the connection between the human mind, uh, the human emotions, and the human nervous system, okay. or uh, immune system. And this states that there's a connection between all these three things. It's, it's a trinity that naturally occurs in the body. Uh, this is why when somebody gets sick, they're uh, more susceptible, um, or I'm sorry, when, when somebody is in a bad state of mind, they're more susceptible to um, get sick. Oh, sure. It's because all these three things are connected. And when we find when a spirit dies, this trinity is broken. So they lose um, the immune system because it's tied into the human body. So they're left with the mind and emotions. And... Just like with uh, a blind person, you know, when they lose that sense of sight, all the other senses have to jump in and pick up the slack. Okay. And there's been a lot of cases where uh, blind people do have, uh, like, their sense of hearing is almost uh, like a, a superhuman, uh, superhero ability. Sure, your other senses would have to accentuate to, to compensate for the fact that uh, you can't see anymore. Exactly. So they, they, they pick up the slack. Now, the same thing happens when a, a, a spirit is in the afterlife. Their mind is amplified and their emotions are amplified. And uh, another thing that happens is that the, the, the soul tries to complete this trinity with the energy in the afterlife. So the energy that you know, makes up the entire afterlife now becomes that third part, uh, that new immune system for the body. So now the mind can start manipulating energy. The uh, emotions can start manipulating energy. And now you have a recipe for disaster because this, if a, a spirit has, uh, is very hungry, has a, a severe level of hunger, they can now start manipulating their reality to reflect their mind state. And now this can just feed upon itself until it's become very demonic they can start altering their world, and if they start becoming powerful enough, they can start manipulating our world. And this is where we get temperature fluctuations. Um, this is why Eliza can spike the meter. You know, she's not um, a, a destructive spirit, but, you know, she's still playing around with energy. But, you know, with the demonics or the destructive spirits, yeah, they're, they're trying anything they can to inflict pain. You know, they're not thinking right. And they will do anything they can to uh, cause destruction around them and to others. Now, well, that's an interesting theory on 
the idea of the connection of the mind and the emotion and the body, I mean, slash immune system, and then changing that so when you don't have a body anymore, then you need something to, you know, to work with. Um, and so you would work yeah. with the, the energy around you. That's a that's an interesting thought I haven't heard before. Yeah, and this is why, you know, I call this Does Something 2.0 because I incorporate things like psychology into this stuff. And, you know, and to incorporate things like philosophy, it just opens the door even more because we find the entire second half of the Tibetan Book of the Dead talks about all the evil manifestations that the mind can create and uh, can what your world can be twisted into. So it's a very, very interesting text that, you know, it gets convoluted at times and hard to read, but, man, it's just a blueprint of, uh, you know, what's what could be in the afterlife. Well, and you just said something right there. You're like, it's a blueprint of what could be in the afterlife. And I know, you know, when you've heard you talk before, uh, you talk a little bit about there being some kind of of rules in the afterlife. Now, have you found that one religion gets it right or another? Or uh, So that was just, you know, what I'm, what I'm getting at here is, do those rules of the afterlife have a correlation to anything we might have already thought of in the, in the terrestrial world? All right, so let me set this up a little bit. Um, Please do. As far as the rules for the afterlife, now, when we were at the uh, St. Augustine Lighthouse, we were having a great conversation with Elijah. We were talking about, you know, can you fall in love? We were, we, we were able to confirm that. Uh, so we were having a good time. And then there came a point in the conversation that I wanted to go just a little bit deep, deeper. Mm-hmm. So I asked, I asked Elijah, I said, is being dead the same as being alive? Well, that question, I don't know what it was about that question, but it seemed to freak her out, and she stopped talking to us. Okay. And she stopped lighting up the meters, and we were just sitting there by ourselves in the dark, twiddling our thumbs. And I was like, okay, what just happened? Now, I initially thought, yeah, I initially thought that maybe I embarrassed her in front of our tour guide because maybe I brought the uh, fact that, okay, yeah, she is in the afterlife and he's alive, you know, that could be embarrassing to her, to a teenager. Right. Well, yeah, you could say that, right? You're like, Dad, don't break up the fact that I'm dead in front of my boyfriend. (laughs) Right. So it took us a long time to coax her back into the room, probably a good 10 minutes. Okay. And once once we got her back, uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to throw her some fluff ball questions like any good interviewer would do. And kind of used her into the conversation again, and everything was humming, humming along greatly. Okay. So once I thought, oh, okay, we're at a good uh, conversation point, I, I, I went down a, uh, uh, another path where I asked uh, another question of uh, trying to answer the question of, do you have a body or are you a, a ball of light? Well, that question also freaked her out, and she would not answer. She left the conversation again. So the letters didn't meet up. We asked her, are you still here with us? Mm -hmm. No response. So we were left there for another 10 minutes trying to coax her back into the room, and that's when I decided to use the fudge to lure her back, and that was the only thing uh, that that brought her back into the room. Now, let me... um, just reiterate that you know, if I didn't have psychology to back me up or, or you know, all this philosophy and whatnot to back me up, the mm-hmm. conversation would have ended right there. The, the, the rest of this conversation would not have taken place. So I prayed on her hungry, um, uh, her hungry spirit uh, profile, got her back into room, and I can kind of see something happening here. I was like, okay, you know, there's a connection between these two questions. Okay. And I decided, I decided to ask her about that. And I said, Eliza, is there something that you're not allowed to tell us? And the meter spiked. And I said, is it, does it have to do with something I asked you? And the meter spiked again. And then I said, are there rules to the afterlife? 
that you must follow. And the meter spiked again. And at this point, if a pin dropped anywhere in the basement, we would have heard it. I mean, everybody was dead silent. We had um, um, a camera crew recording us for a documentary. They were also dead silent. They were like, we're, we do not want to miss what happens next. Right. What are the rules? Who knew there were rules about this? And who's making those rules? Right. So, uh, and thankfully, Alan, another investigator friend, uh, he jumped in. And he's like, will you get in trouble if you talk about them? And the answer came back, yes. So, at the time, we were just shocked. I was like, holy cow, what the heck? I couldn't believe what we were getting. I mean, this changes everything. And, uh, you know, after the fact, when you when you can sit and dwell on these things, you mm-hmm. know, that's when all the good questions come to mind. You're like, oh, man, who's making these? Uh, who Who's placing the afterlife? Why, why can't you tell this, this stuff? And how will you be punished? And uh, with, with my book, I tried to go, go into detail to answer some of those things and, and exactly how it all relates together. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and in your further investigations, have you had a chance to ask about any more of those you know, questions? So you're, from your first conversation with Eliza, you're like, okay, this is opening up that, that, that there's maybe you know, some kind of paranormal omerta, like the blood oath that the mafia used to have, that they could never talk about <laughs> it. You know, have you discovered this with other investigations where you kind of pushed it a little further that that maybe beyond the veil, um, there is, I mean, somebody is making an organizational decision. Oh yeah. Um, we've been in plenty of conversations or interactions like that, um, afterward. And I've talked to maybe like three or four different spirits. And every time I bring up the subject of there being rules to the afterlife, they'll tell me, yes, there are rules that they, they have to follow, but they won't tell me anything else beyond that. I, and I've rephrased my questions a billion different ways. They will not answer um, those questions. It just brings the conversation to a complete halt. And to make this even more interesting, uh, I ended up talking to Grant Wilson about this from the Ghost Hunters. And uh, he just... He was telling me a, a story about uh, the time that he's uh, ever got, or the longest conversation that he's ever gotten with a, a spirit. And he said that when he brought up the notion of God and, and you know, what, he, what the spirit thinks about God, that he said that the conversation always, always comes to a complete halt. And uh, after, he got, after he told me that, I said, well, yeah, well, I... Interestingly enough, I found out why that is. And he just stared back at me wide-eyed. He's like, really? How the heck did you find that out? So, uh, you know, even Grant Wilson, who's been on thousands of investigations, I'm sure, already, uh, you know, it's just my research was able to uncover something that, you know, he still struggled with. So it just really brought my research full circle in my mind. And so, just to go on blatant, uh, I know it's not, it's always... um dangerous ground when you say like okay let's go on blatant speculation here but um you know who do you who do you think is making those rules oh, well that's a deep conversation <laughs> well are, are you, you know, or your best guess like you say when you bring in psychology and philosophy and you know you talk about ancient texts and things going beyond just proving that somebody's there talking to us and, and trying to get our attention, have you had any clues into who's, who's in between us and them? Well, if you really dig into any religion, um, and if you read up on Kabbalah, I mean, it really uh, makes it clear, uh, there seems to be uh, a pecking order in the afterlife. I, I think the Bible uh, really states it uh, in the book of Job when they talk about, you know, the different layers of heaven that exist. And, yeah, there's just a pecking order that exists, and every level that one has to go through, there's going to be rules. So, uh, you know, I, I hate to get all preachy, but it seems like the more I dig into ghost hunting, the more um, philosophy and, and religion helps answer a lot of the questions that investigators are asking. So have you talked to a non-human 
entity? Like, you know, in the Bible, like angels were never, like we always think of angels, like, well, they go up to heaven and they become an angel. But no, angels were never human. Angels were, you know, created at a, a different time than people. And, I mean, just to get into the, the religious aspect of it. Or, you know, the um, non, have you ever think that you've talked to an entity that wasn't human when it was here? Yes, uh, there was a time where I ended up getting into a conversation with a spirit, and uh, we were trying to figure out, you know, what their gender was. So I asked the normal line of questioning, are, are you male? Are you female? Uh, and then another investigator that was with me said, are you neither? And the meter spiked. It's like, well, what the heck do you make of that? Uh, right, there was no. Do they have transgender yeah. in the afterlife? <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, of course, this was before all that controversy. Right, right. Um, but then there was another time where I was talking to this spirit uh, in the basement of uh, the Collingwood Art Center, where I do tours at, and there's a spirit there that won't tell us anything about itself. And I, I don't understand why, but I think it's because it's a non-human uh, entity. Uh, there was one time where I asked it, I said, do you consider yourself a worker of the light? And the meter spiked. So I don't know if we were talking to an angel or maybe something that considers themselves a, you know, a worker of the light that was once human. So it's just instances like that. So little things like that where it's like they're just, they admit that it's like, okay, well, we never were people. We're, we're something else. And that, that kind of gets at your pecking order. Right. Exactly. If somebody wants to go out and they want to go beyond ghost hunting 1.0, like what are three, uh, either three pieces of equipment you would bring and a, a couple of tips on how to kind of get past that? Because I feel like ghost hunting 2.0 is the way you're describing it. It's that in the first version, we're just, you know, is just to prove that there's something to it. And then the next version is how do we either coexist with it? How do we help them move on? I mean, how do we make these, you know, instead of just hearing the footsteps uh, upstairs in your grandparents' house, how do you go up and, and communicate and live with those, whoever's creating those footsteps in your grandparents' house. So if you're a 2.0 ghost hunter investigator, what equipment would you bring and what tips would you give them uh, that maybe they haven't heard before? Well, as far as equipment goes, I mean, my go-to item is the K2 meter. Um, I also use the Opolis. Uh You have to really know how to use an Opolis because a lot of times it'll just, you know, it, it'll spit out a lot of random words that make no sense. And I like to call this Opolis babble. Uh, now, can you explain the obelisk real quick to somebody who maybe has never seen one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is what I like to call a voice box for the dead because uh, it's just a small box. It has a word bank inside of it, and it'll kind of um, take the energy in an area and associate a word to it. So, you know, uh, I, I'm sure Milton Bradley will jump on board with this thing absolutely. one day. But <laughs> um but yeah, I, I like to bring that along, uh, the K2 meter. Um, and, you know, you have to have common sense. You know, you just can't sit there and go, oh my gosh, you know, if you take a K2 meter up to a cell phone, it's going to go off. If you take it up to a, um, like a refrigerator or any strong, powerful um, mag uh, electrical source, it's going to go off. And not everything is a spirit. <laughs> so you have to have common sense about you. Um, and just understand this, that spirits are human, or were once human. Uh, you know, they still fall for the same psychological tricks that a human can. Uh, and that's, you know, you might want to brush up on human psychology as well, but uh, that's, that will give you the seeds of you know, trying to take this to the next level. Now, have you ever had a, uh, an experience where like, you, you talk about your, your go-to is the K2. Have you ever had multiple layers of evidence in kind of a setting where it's like, okay, the K2 meter went off and we got something on the camera and we had a cold spot in the room and all of a sudden the notebook fell over or something like that? 
Yeah, there's been a couple times where the K2 meter will go off, and we've gotten an EVP at the exact same moment. Um, the one I'm thinking of right now is we're in the basement of the Collingwood Art Center, and we're trying to figure out uh, what era this spirit lived in. And I was just saying, okay, uh, spike the meter whenever we get to the era uh, of time when you died. So, or, I'm sorry, um, that, that you lived. And I said, you know, did you live in the 1940s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s? And right when I hit the 70s, uh, the meter started to spike. And at the same exact moment, we ended up getting an EVP of someone saying, I don't know. So that just, <laughs> that, that one kind of blew us away. Sure, like maybe they partied, they partied too hard in the 70s, they don't remember it. <laughs> maybe. But yeah, little things like that where it's like you, you have a, just a couple of different uh, pieces of evidence at the same time. Um, I always find that the, the most fascinating because then it's like you have, you have corroboration from, it, it, it gets closer to being beyond chance. And I always think that's really exciting in that kind of research. So right, anything that um, you know takes down the level of things just being a mere coincidence, I love it because there's times when I'm even interacting with a spirit, and I'm just yelling at everybody in the room. I'm like, Is, "Are you are you sure everybody's cell phone's off? Because I can't believe you know what we're getting." Right. Of course, you know, everybody's like, "Yeah, we're all our cell phones are off." So you know, sometimes it's, it's it's just nice to kind of reiterate what's going on. Absolutely. Any any uh, ghost hunts or upcoming things that you're really looking forward to? Um, well, we're doing a ghost hunt for Halloween at the Collingwood Art Center. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm also doing a, a, a lecture alongside people like Grant Wilson and John Zaffis and some, you know, some really big names in the field. So it's kind of nice to uh, be among them to kind of spread the, the good word of what I'm doing. So I'm very excited about that opportunity. And if people want to uh, find out more about you or pick up the book, where can they go to do that? Uh, they can go to PursuitOfTheParanormal.com. And uh, for the book, it's available everywhere. Okay. So uh, make sure you check that out. And if you're, uh, I saw it's on Kindle Unlimited too. So people that are subscribers to that, they can jump in and they can start reading that like immediately. Uh, so that, that's pretty exciting that you got it out there. So anyway, we're going to put links to your Twitter and Facebook in the show notes. So everybody check there. Make sure you follow and like Chris's page and uh, check out Ghost Hunting 2.0 because um, it's an interesting read and it's got new ideas about ghosts that I haven't heard before. And uh, it, it's, it's pretty fun. So I want to thank you for taking the time today, Chris. Oh, thank you. I had a good time, and uh, I've actually had some pretty big names kind of look at my research, and they're just like, wow, you're, I think you're on to something. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a pretty compelling book, and I tried to break it down as, as best I could uh, in, in layman's terms. So uh, it's a very easy read. Fantastic. And we'll be watching you for more, so thank you very much. All right, thank you. Okay, so you can uh, check him out at PursuitOfTheParanormal.com, Chris Boris, and uh, you can check out his blog posts and everything where he, he talks about this ghost hunting 2.0 and the communication with the spirits. And I think that now we have a little bit more in our uh, arsenal of, of knowledge, I guess, for, mm -hmm. for going ghost hunting. So, you know, in addition to him, a few of the other guests have suggested things and I've been kind of taking notes. So I think that if we do decide to go downtown and check out one of those cool places sometime or one of those perhaps haunted places, yes. I think we could have a pretty good approach going into it. I do too. I think we could be just like the ghost hunters on, <laughs> on TV and we'll get some cool evidence because I think yeah. we're armed with a lot of research now. And I'm not going to be the last one in line though. I'm just telling Fair. you right now. Yep. That's, no, that's, that's perfectly fine. So, I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting was when Chris was talking about, well, that there are rules to be dead. Like, there's, there's, uh, that was very fascinating. Right. Like, what does he, what does he mean? Like, somebody's watching them, somebody's watching what they say. Like, the first rule of Fight Club, you know, it's like the first rule of being dead is <laughs> don't talk about being dead. <laughs> right. And, uh, so I thought that was interesting. And that kind of was the inspiration for this episode's song. 
because whether or not there's rules of the dead, we know we know one rule uh, for sure, and that's dead men tell no tales. You know, so uh, we, and they we, can't eat fudge, right? <laughs> we know that rule uh, for sure is true. That uh, when you're gone, you can't say the things that you wanted to say to the people that you, when you were here. Mm. So that is the inspiration for this week's track, Rules of the Dead. for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey, I think you're great, but you're um you're dead.